Hello and welcome to Life at the School, episode 33. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Clifford Nefrata. Clifford is a science teacher at Arcadia High School in Phoenix, Arizona. Clifford teaches Biology 1, AP Biology, and Human Anatomy and Physiology. Clifford is a practitioner and advocate for active learning. That includes Arcadia's Students Working Actively with Technology, or SWAT program, POGLES, seminars instead of lectures, standard-based grades, and mastery learning. Clifford is a regular and active participant in the National AP Biology Teachers Group on Facebook and is one of the moderators of the National Anatomy and Physiology teachers Facebook group as well. Outside of the classroom, Clifford also serves as the Arcadia High School wrestling coach. Welcome, Clifford. Ah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's great. Uh, yeah, we were we were chatting a little bit, and you know, it's funny. We were chatting a little before we got going, and we didn't talk about baseball. Um, <laughs> which I, I actually, yeah, I actually have a game going on in, in the background, um, watching the Nationals Cubs go at it. Yeah, and then I know that's that's only the warm up act for you. You got you got yeah, the, exactly. the, the Dodgers later yeah, exactly. on. Uh, so, and as promised, I told you uh, we're recording this on uh, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day here, um, where I am on a, a day break and uh, you are on your fall break. You've got you get a week fall break off, um, and the Red Sox were eliminated uh, this afternoon. Exactly uh, <laughs> as I had predicted. As I as I had predicted, I honestly thought they were going to get predict, uh, you know, knocked out in Game Three, but uh, they managed to. <laughs> They managed to do the dagger in the heart of like blowing the game in the eighth today um, <laughs> instead. So, uh, <laughs> great day for baseball. Great day for baseball. Let me tell you. Yeah, not a bad day to be off if you're a baseball fan. Um, yeah. So I've been I've been sitting around finishing grading term papers with the baseball game on in the background and uh, looking forward to this talk. So I'm glad. I'm so glad you could join me. Um, and uh, so let's get into that first uh, that first question. Um, you know, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? Well, it's kind of weird because um, I, I'd always been the kind of student where it, not not that everything was easy. It's just nothing was so difficult that I had to, to choose my route. So I had gone through um, you know high school um, knowing that. I was very interested in science, and it was very, you know, I was very interested in biological sciences, but I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. And when you have that interest, you seem to get pushed in one direction. You seem to get pushed into this, um, you know, the, the pre-health professions field, and, and you, you start to think that that is your interest. So I went into my undergrad, um, you know, thinking that that's where I was going, um, ended up, well, you know, following everybody else and in, 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 really walking that route until the very end. Um, I had gone all the way through uh, at the admissions process, um, you know, gone through the MCATs, and then uh, oh, wow. literally, literally, in, you know, I had one 24-hour period where I just sat down and, and thought about what I was doing, and I really started to wonder if I was really doing that for myself, if, if this was something that that I wanted or if it was something that other people wanted or if it was something that my friends wanted. And, um, you know, so I, I decided to put a pause on it, you know, 
um, not exactly taking a gap kind of a, a, a year or whatever, but uh, I, I, I went into um, non-degree graduate status um, to try and think about it. And, and in, in that time, um, I really noticed that I enjoyed teaching. You know, when you have an opportunity to be a teaching assistant and a graduate assistant, um, you, you get a chance to do to do some kind of, you know, teaching on a small scale. And I was also hired to be a, uh, um, you know, a tutor for the student athletes. And that was my full time job. And I also ended up running, you know, a couple of labs, a couple of undergraduate labs. And I did, you know, the, the, the anatomy and physiology lab and. I realized that there was something there, you know, there was something that, that I loved going to that classroom or going to that lab every day because there was going to be an interaction there. Um, mm. So it, it really came out of the blue. Um, it, it wasn't not not to say that that there wasn't an influence there. I mean, my brother is a is a um, chemistry teacher in California. And, you know, it was always, you know, it was always a thought, but it, it was never serious. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, you know, after I, I figured out that uh, maybe I did have some kind of talent and some kind of passion because I, I really loved the content and I really loved making it easier for everybody else around me. Um, so I, I pursued that and, uh, you know, got my master's in education and I've been doing it, um, you know, for the last few years and I can't see myself doing anything else. I, I think about it all the time, what my skill set really is. I don't think I have a skill set outside of education. So I think this is, you know, I think this is where I'm, where I'm supposed to be. So, um, yeah, that's how it got, that's how it got started. I, you know, it was just one of those things. And, and as it turns out, I really, really love what I'm doing. So that's always the plus, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what school, where, what school were you at that you were, that you ended up making that shift over? I I graduated from Arizona state university. Mm -hmm. So, um, here in town, um, you know, as I was at ASU and, and, um, I, I had some good, good people around me, some good professors around me that also recognized, you know, that in me and, you know, planted a seed here and there and, and, you know, helped me, helped me take a look at, at, at that as an option. So yeah, I was out here at Arizona state university, went into the master's program and, and I've been out here ever since. So this is where I'm at. Nice. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting cause you, you went down that route and, um, I've had a conversation with a lot of people who kind of go different routes. I, I'm curious if you ever thought about like going to get the PhD route and do the teaching that way, or it was something about the interaction that made you think, no high school, I want to go. Was there, was there something in particular that, that made you not pursue that, that advanced degree to become like a professor? Um, was it advice or I think the biggest thing that I really enjoyed was making or, or facilitating non-science mm-hmm. majors to look at science in a different way. You know, not, not that I have any gift whatsoever and, and, you know, nothing like that at all. But the enjoyment for me was, was in that. I mean, it's easy to convince a science major to love science, you know, but when I was able to to, um, you know, explain some of some of these higher level concepts to non-science majors, it made it made it it made it work. Yeah. And it made it work for them. And so I, I like the idea. I kind of like the idea of of of, uh, you know, focusing on that kind of thing. And then when it came time to decide, I really 
honestly, it was time to get a job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, okay, so I found this this one year master's program. Like, okay, I can get my master's in a year. I can be teaching within two years, or I can stay in academia. And and, and I didn't, I, I wasn't sure that I could hang on that long. Yeah. Um, you know, so I decided, I, you know, and uh, you figure you can always go back. You can always, you can always reapply. You can always, uh, uh, you know, there, there's many roads out there after this one that you take. So I decided, yeah, let's, let, let's try this. And, um, I think I've, I've figured that, uh, you know, high school, um, high school sciences, especially advanced biological sciences, mm-hmm. um, something that I, that I love to do. And I don't know that I can go any, any further than, than high school right now. Yeah. So. So that that brings up to sort of my next thought, and uh, you know, I'd mentioned before that um, uh, the AP Biology Teacher Facebook group is where you know where I learned your name. I mean, that's that's the case. You're you're very you know you're active, involved in there, and you're always commenting, and you're always commenting along in the stream with people who uh, I have a lot of uh, respect for, and and um, I was saying to you before like a lot of times I read your posts and I'm like nodding um, which is like the lamest affirmation because you don't see that but (laughs) but I'm nodding and maybe I can click that little like button from time to time if that happens but uh, in truth it's you know not an opportunity where you can really flush these ideas out Um, but I remember looking back at a conversation that you were involved in um, and actually it's been it's come up a few different times but uh, you had posted I think it was either sometimes last spring or last summer um, you'd posted one of Eric Major's uh, articles and he's, you know, the end of lecture or I believe the article was like the twilight of lecture. And for those people yes. don't know, Eric Major is a uh, professor at Harvard, um, a physics professor at Harvard, who basically is promoting, you know, active learning on on the collegiate level. Um, and the one thing that I'm always curious about is for people who uh, sort of agree with that philosophy the you know we don't stand and deliver we don't lecture but we look for those active learning i always wonder sort of how did that happen do you step in the classroom when you started teaching were you a stand and deliver prepare the powerpoint notes you know that kind of guy and then have moved in this or sort of what's been your evolution towards the uh the end of lecture type philosophy i think i think everybody starts out um in the survival mode and when you're in survival mode the easiest thing to do is to stand and deliver um because that way you are sure that the students are going to get what you think they need to get what you think they need to get to succeed on on the test or the test at the end of the course or the test at the end of the year so that's the easiest way to do it and it's it's real easy to fall into that pattern and to continue to do that year after year because in your head, you start to build up this idea that you're doing what you're supposed to do, mm-hmm. you know. And so that that's how it was for the first, you know, for the first few years. Now it was easy to, you know, and, and, and I'm not going to use this language to, um, you know, to, to 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 bag on anybody else or or to give them, you know, you know, I, I'm not trying to push push myself in, in, onto a higher pedestal, but. Mm-hmm. There was a point in time where I where I really started to think, um, because of the quality of the questions my students were asking me, I was starting to think, do they really care what I'm saying? Because, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah, I do. I would I, I would say something, and they would say, you know, it, it almost came to the point where they would stop me after every word just to make sure they wrote it down, and 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 that to me really struck because, I you know it, it was to the point where I could basically tell them anything I wanted. 
I could tell them anything I wanted. They're going to write it down. And the night before the test, they're going to go back and look at exactly what I told them. And that's what's going to that's what they're going to memorize for the test. Mm. And, you know, that and that happened with my freshman when I was teaching, you know, freshman biology and freshman uh, earth and space science. Um, and I decided that that really wasn't um, that really wasn't doing anything for them in terms of getting them to love the content that I loved. So I started to try and explore other ways and I started to explore ways to make your, my lectures a little more active. Now, um, I always considered myself and, and again, this is one of those ego things that teachers always <laughs> go through that um, you, you believe you really believe that you are some kind of talented, you know, lecturer. And I still believe that to this day. I, I really feel like I can get in front of a group of students and I can lecture and it'll be entertaining and it'll be active and they'll be engaged mm -hmm. and it'll be a beautiful 50 minutes of, you know, wonder, wondrous storytelling. Um, you know, but then again, is that really is that really what I want them to, you know, do I want them to get everything from my words? Mm -hmm. So I started to look for ways to make my lectures a little bit more active and it just slowly slowly started to integrate um you know apps and technology where i could and then i you know saw some of this work from from uh, you know eric major and i read his article and i started to think about it a little bit more um and then i ran into you know um Knufke online mm -hmm. i got david Knufke's website online and i saw how he started doing things and i started to, to you know, see that there was another side here, that there was, there was really this true active learning component. Um, so it really didn't happen until the last uh, maybe four or five years where I really started to dive into this, into this idea um, of changing the way I, my classroom was. Um, I, I loved standing in front of my students and talking because, the, you know, all eyes were on me, mm -hmm. you know, but... Um, you know, when I had time to reflect and when I read the quality of my responses, when I, you know, read their, their, you know, their writing, um, it, it was really, they, they were parents. It was a parent of what I was telling them and, and I didn't want that, you know? Mm. Yeah. It's funny. Like you, you mentioned that this, this, um, this assumption and I, I completely believe everything what you said about <clears throat> this, this assumption that we have that if we tell them we have taught them. Um, and I, I don't know why, <laughs> other than the fact that that's the way we were all taught. Um, and that's, that's what I keep coming back to as my, my fallback position. Um, every biology teacher I know went through a university, you know, system where they went to lectures. <laughs> like, exactly. And so that's how we learned. Um, and so that's how we assume learning takes place, that, that sort of empty vessel idea. But I remember distinctly somebody saying, you know, I feel like I have to tell them. It's almost like we're, you know, it's like, you know, cover your A, you know, <laughs> like. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like they can't come back at me and say, oh, I didn't tell you this uh, for the test. But exactly. that's still not learning. Like learning involves engagement. And I, I said to somebody, I was like, well, just because you said it doesn't mean that they got it. Just because you said it doesn't mean that it has any meaning to them. Um and just because they're quiet doesn't mean they're engaged. I mean, 
Exactly. In fact, I, I, just the opposite. <laughs> a quiet classroom is often a non-engaged classroom. Um, yeah, yeah, and you know that that culture is so you know ingrained. That philosophy is so ingrained in our culture that even our students will argue that that's the best way they learn. Absolutely. You know? And and you have that conversation with them, and I have that conversation with my juniors and my seniors all the time. Um, they insist that that's the best way that they learn, and I, and, and I ask them, okay, well, let me ask you these kinds of questions. You know, and and I'll ask them, trying to probe deep. You know, tr trying to trying to increase that depth, that level of questioning, and they can't get past. You know, they can't get past anything that has to do. You know, with analysis or something. They they, they can't even get there, because they're so used to repeating exactly what you tell them. Yeah. You know, um, and it's one of those things where you even have to train them how to ask questions because. Um, you know, when they're asking questions, you know, when they ask questions, they think a high level question is something like, uh, so what do we need to know about this? That's <laughs> not really a question, are you? It's one of those things where, and, and, I, and I'm struggling with it, with it too, because every year your, your students are going to be, you know, different. I think this year, the students that I have want so hard to, or the, you know, they're trying so hard and they want so much to, to um, you know, fall, fall into my, my idea, my philosophy. And they're trying really hard, but they also have this eye on their transcripts. Oh yeah. So it, it's we're trying to balance it. We're trying, to, and, and I'm I'm I've been very lucky with, um, you know, the parents that I have, and you know some of the administrators that I have that they're they're letting me explore this, and they've let me explore this for the last few years, and um, I, I it is working. I do have. I do have data that it is working. It is very slow. It's, it's you know, it's it's not going to be leaps and bounds above what my, the the teacher next door is doing, um, but it's slowly working. It's it's changing the culture. It's not really, yeah. you know, it, it's it's nothing that's going to be quick. Well, and the thing that I've been playing around with this year, that's sort of in that same idea, um, um, is like, how do you teach fourteen-year-olds metacognition? Um, right. <laughs> you know, with my with my younger kids. And I think that for my older kids, <clears throat> yeah, I've been around the block a while and I do have a little bit of a, you know, when you've been teaching in a building for almost 20 years um, and, you know, I, I just had we just had our back to school night with parents um, last week. And the number of parents who come in who, you know, I had their older son or daughter or <laughs> I had the kid the first time, you know, like. You know, I don't know what better way to say it, but when I was a new teacher, I used to refer to the teachers who are like me when my my career. I called them the lions, like you know, yeah. they're, they're the they're the they're the head of the pack. They're the, you know, that's when you've been around for twenty years. That's kind of the deal. Um, yes. And so I have a degree of cachet with my AP kids. They know their older friends who took AP, and I don't really need to do a lot of sell job on me as a teacher there. Um, but the younger kids, they just. They they have to they just don't there's so much they don't know. <laughs> yes, yes. And and so I you know, I've been I've been stopping and asking them the question, all right, so how well how well do you know this? Are you super comfortable? Are you hundred percent comfortable? Rank how you feel about this. Are you certain about this? Are you uncertain? Um, are you not certain at all? And I've been asking them like you know, giving them like a, a, a prompt question and then asking them to rank themselves, then doing a turn and talk and saying, all right, now I'd like you to rank yourself again. And then at the end of the class, having them say, all right, so we did five questions in here. We did a jigsaw. 
Um, I've got different colored popsicle sticks in the front of the room. I want you to drop the color popsicle stick that matches how you feel. If you think you could get five or six of these questions right, if you were given a pop quiz, I'd like I'd like you to put a green popsicle stick in. If it's three or four, I'd like a yellow. If it's two or less, give me a red. So I've been asking questions like that. I've been asking them to rank their feelings. Uh, I still don't know that I've got it yet, but this idea of Getting them to think that the most important thing is where they are and not where I as a teacher am, that's that's a really hard thing for them. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it, it's it's real hard for uh, for students to understand what, what we really want from them until they're, they're mature enough mm-hmm. to understand that it's okay for them to have a range here, you know? Um, when they're younger, they just want to get those, you know, they want to rank themselves at threes and fours because they want to impress you. Mm-hmm. you know? They show you that, oh, hey, you know, we are good students. We are listening to you. You are a good teacher. So I do know everything. You know, I do know this stuff. Um, it, 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 it's kind of, it, that's definitely something that we have to teach them. And it's easy for teachers to say, you know, reflect on this. I want you to write a reflection on this. But we're not teaching them how to reflect. Yeah. You know, and that's something um, that I... I have to start with at the beginning of the year, um, even as they're coming to me as upperclassmen, um, I have to teach them how to truly reflect and that I'm not judging the reflection. I'm not judging on them on the reflection. Yeah, that's that's the one thing that I find it's um, I haven't tried. I haven't figured out what pushes that, those buttons the right way. I wonder if it's like. They don't want to feel like, you know, what's the best way of getting their rankings? Like, I definitely feel like it should be anonymous. Um, like, and so I've been doing some of those anonymous, but also it's gotta be anonymous to not just me. It's also gotta be anonymous to their peers. Like I, I, there's a few different ways I gotta do this. And I've been trying different, like, you know, opening questions and closing questions to have people, you know, tell me some feedback and and that sort of thing. And I, again, so far I feel like it's, it's sort of working, but I also feel like I'm not quite where I need to be. So, um, I'm hoping to get some feedback from them as we go in and, and maybe we get some stronger pieces, but, um, I, yeah, def- and I think we're all there. I yeah. think we're all there. Um, I think that's, it's a lot easier when the students have had you before. So they know, you know, they've been immersed in your philosophy. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's a lot easier. And, um, when you have the new students coming in, they are still in that mode where they have to, you know, they have to impress the, the teacher. So it's real hard for them to, to, to get that reflection piece. Um, but that's really important to what we're trying to do. That's really important to what we're trying to do because we're not, um, you know, we're not going to dictate to, to them, um, you know, h- how fast they have to move the material. You know, I'm, I'm going as fast as they are, or at least that's my ideal. My ideal is to make sure that we go um, as fast as they can master the material, you know, and I, I can't accurately judge their mastery unless they have a piece in that. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and I tell them that all the time. I tell them that all the time at the end of every month or, you know, the third week of every month. I tell them, you know, we have to start thinking about where we are, you know, in our, uh, you know, in our curriculum. How, how comfortable are you? Because I need to know if we can speed up or if we need to pull back a little bit. Yeah, I think that, you know, and as somebody who doesn't do a standards-based grade um, system, you know, I still have a very traditional um, grading system. Um, although maybe some a true traditionalist might not view all the things that I, I've got built into my system in here. Uh, because I definitely have, I've layered in a lot of uh, components that highlight the standards. But I, um, what I found is that I've noticed some of the things that I do from a sequencing standpoint or basically subtle ways that I undermine 
the language I say about the importance of like learning and mastery or that sort of thing. And how right. do I sequence some of my assessments? Um, do I ask them to do a lot really early on? And is it, does that fly in the face of them really building skills? Um, I was just thinking back about sort of the first lab I have my students do with AP. And I was wondering like, is the way that I had them structure this for AP, was there something about the way I organized this that made it hard for some students? Was I asking them to do too much too soon? And then they got a grade for this thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, am I undermining my own, my own language that I'm telling the kids of what's important? Uh, well, see, and, and, and that's, I mean, you don't have to, um, you know, cause, cause again, my, the system that I use, it's a hybrid grading system and it's mm -hmm. something that I, that I picked up from, um, you know, um, David Kanofsky and Bob Kuhn. Um, mm -hmm. I, I picked up their, their hybrid system because I, I still wanted to honor that traditional grading system, but I, I implemented a lot of the standards-based grading stuff and, and a lot of these ideals I implemented even with my traditional grading that because I'm a lot more interested now than I ever have been in whether or not the students are, you know, where they are on the journey, yeah. you know, rather than can we get to the end because we have a, you know, we have an EOC that we have to take in May, you know? Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that's one of those things that, that again, the, the students, they don't really they don't really hear that they don't really hear that enough that it's okay to to you know slowly walk you know we don't have to run we don't have to sprint we can slowly walk there yeah. and we'll eventually pick up what we you know what we need to do and if we don't pick up the specifics you'll have all of the skills you need at the end of it anyway you know that's one of the things I like about the AP curriculum is yeah. that it emphasizes that a lot. And so I think, um, you know, this is my third year teaching AP. This was when I got into teaching, um, you know, that was, that was my goal. It was my goal to teach AP bio and, and anatomy and physiology because that, 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 that's where I came from. Those were my, that was my background. That was my undergrad. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to, to hit that high level science stuff. And when I finally got here, um, I did. It, 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 it wasn't about the content anymore, you know, and that's what I really like about the redesign. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was lucky. I was lucky that I came in after the redesign because I've never known AP bio, you know, from a teacher standpoint, I've, I've never known it any other way. I went through the AP bio old school curriculum. I remember how that was, but I have no, you know, preconceived notions about how it was to teach that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was an interesting, I, I, I did, I've taught in both systems. Um, and uh, I love love the current system, as I've said many, many, many times. Um, <laughs> but I definitely think that there and I wonder this because I've talked to, you know, several colleagues and I've heard conversations about, um, you know, people str struggling with the change when you teach in a system, particularly for a long time. I know people who taught, you know, 10 years under the old system. It's, it was hard for a lot of people to trust that really all that content was gone and really mm -hmm. all these processes are important. Um and I think that now, we're, now that we're several years in, I, I think everyone's, or nearly everyone's there um, to this point. But um, yeah, I'm curious to, I'm curious where I'm going to end up going in terms of this, this like standard standards hybrid with the new AP. Because I still teach, I still teach the system on the bones of the old course, um, if that makes right, any sense. Right. Like we, we've changed it and we've modified and we don't, you know, we don't, it's not about the coverage and labs drive the curriculum and all that stuff, but we still are in very much a framework that's, 
based off the framework we taught before the changeover. Um, right, right. And it's, there are, that we've actually been having, because uh, I teach with a colleague, I, I, I co-teach the AP, it's two teachers who, who share all the AP work um, at my school, and we have a great relationship. But we've had a lot of these recent conversations about this idea of, you know, um, you know, how do we work out this, how, how do we incorporate this sort of storyline idea or, you know, refining our standards to be more student friendly in their language as opposed to say the college board's language um, <laughs> moving forward. Right. And I, I have a feeling that as we go deeper down there, we're going to, we may want to throw the bones out that we have, uh, but we haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> and again, like, like, I mean, I, I, again, I was lucky because yeah. the situation that I walked into, so I walked in um, it, to this new school, you know, I, I moved from a different school in the district because mm -hmm. of budget budget constraints. So I ended up moving to this school and, um, there was a, a I, I came in with another teacher with another, um, teacher and, um, they gave him the AP bio. Um, and it was the first year of the redesign oh. and they gave the AP bio, uh, curriculum. Um, and he really struggled with it because he really wanted to, um, he, he really wanted to do it the, the old way. Wow. He really wanted to do the old, but and he really struggled with with the redesign, um, and I don't know what it was like, you know, in, in when they first did it and how hard it was for teachers to to um, transition. But uh, it was it, it was a situation where um, our site essentially dropped um, AP Bio for a year, um, you know, be, because of of the way it turned out, you know, and so. Um, Three years ago, I was given the opportunity again because there was renewed interest by students who, you know, they realized that uh, some of the other schools in the district had mm -hmm. it available to them and they wanted it to be available. So I was able to pick up the mantle. So I didn't have, again, um, and, and because of that year break, I had every, I mean, everything was, was fresh. Mm -hmm. You know, I was able to design it on my own and I was able to to you know, look at the curriculum and and do what I had to do with the curriculum and to put it in place, you know. So I was very lucky that I had that. Um, and they told me rel relatively early. They told me relatively early in the spring. So I had you know all spring and all summer to immerse myself in how I wanted to do this. And that's when I found you know the the TCB group and yep. the Facebook group. And I went to an APSI. And that's when I really started to network. And um, you know I really hadn't jumped into professional development as a as a serious um, growth opportunity than when I realized that I was going to have AP biology because I didn't want to fail anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the you talk about that switch and what it was like just to give you a little perspective. Um, the the guy I teach with who he had been teaching the old system for about a decade um, and I had not. But he he trusted me in a lot of the, you know, I'd gone to the, I'd gone through a workshop in the summer and we got all of the alignments and we sat down and we, we look at the alignment and we eliminate a lot of stuff from our curriculum. And a week before the AP, as we were getting ready for like our last review, he was completely freaking out. And he is not <laughs> a guy who freaks out. He is like the mellowest guy you could possibly meet. Super happy, like really enjoys it, super reflective, but he was legitimately freaking out 
about all the stuff that we had kind of. He's like, you, you sure? You sure they don't need to know this, like, you know, plant phyla or these other human body systems? And I'm like, I'm sure. I'm sure they don't need to know this. But I have the doc. I'm pulling out the documents and I'm pointing to it. It's like either College Board has completely lied to us <laughs> or they don't need to know this. <laughs> I was like, I, I can't tell you 100% because I didn't write the damn test. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I think it was it was pretty stressful for people who are who are veterans who had taught in the old system right. and had found success in the old system. Um, right. Exactly. And yeah, we went through, we definitely went through a dip and I think we, we, we felt it's weird for two veteran teachers who are like really experienced. Uh, I know that I felt certain, a lot of uncertainty about, you know, how do you teach these statistical concepts in this and what's the best, you know, what's the most sensible way. And even today we're still, you know, we're still exactly. rolling out new things that are like, we're still, there's a lot of learning being done, which is unusual, I think, for people who sort of had a system down. Uh, yeah. Because really the old AP system, like, as I said, he had taught it for 10 years. When I first started teaching with him, he's like, this is what we do. And this is how we get the kids ready. And this new system is so radically different, not only in philosophy, um, but just like how you need to design the course to highlight those skills for kids. Um yeah, it's it. It really was a big thing. So uh, for veteran teachers, it it, it was a test of your flexibility, I think. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and and and, I, and it was the same uh, same kind of thing because, um, you know, my administrator um, had taught AP Bio, and she ended up she taught it for, uh, with the old framework, mm -hmm. and she was able to get one year with the new framework. So you know, she had a lot of. A lot of material, but it was all still based on the bones of the old framework. Yeah. And as I was able to, you know, as I was looking through it, because, um, you know, I had enough time, and I was very lucky. Again, I'm going to tell you, I was very lucky that I had a lot of time to prepare for it. Um, as I was looking at it, I realized that the new, you know, the rewrite, the new framework, was a lot more um, you know, aligned with my philosophy and my pedagogy as it was developing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was quite lucky that that uh, um, because I, I, I was it, it was in it was somewhere inside, um, <laughs> you know, my buried deep in my in my my ideas about how I wanted to teach that I wanted to emphasize, you know, process and process over content and using the process to understand any new content that's put in front of you. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that I like about this new um, you know, this this curriculum is that it allows you to do that. And you can see that we are adding, you know, we're adding new information on a, on a you know, almost a day by day basis. But we're able to understand it because we have this training in this new curriculum. I can I can introduce things from, you know, that we hear in the in the news that these little articles I can introduce them and the kids already have this background in it and are able to use the, the, the skills that they've that they are supposed to be picking up these science skills that they're picking up to understand what it is they're looking at. Yeah. So you just, uh, you, you sparked a, a little transition here and, um, there's two funny things I, I thought about there. The first was the idea that, um, somebody who's come into the AP in the last couple of years, um, 
at some point, even the vet, uh, veterans are going to have to stop calling it the new AP curriculum and just call it the, the AP curriculum because it, it really isn't that new anymore. Um, I realized that when I was talking to the kids, um, or actually I think I was parents night, I was talking to parents night and I was talking about the curriculum and how wonderful the curriculum is since the change. And I was really like, you know what? These parents don't care about the change in the curriculum. Um, as I went through my first, like my first little spiel to the back to school night and I was like, yeah, I should just call it the AP curriculum and how wonderful the design is because it doesn't really matter what it was like six years ago. <laughs> right, exactly. Matters what it is today. But the other thing you brought up was this idea of sort of the, the time component in, um, in terms of your preparation. But I know that you've also talked um, and mentioned on the Facebook community about comparing the time we have to teach a, a, an AP course in high school, which is supposed to be, you know, a college level course versus the time that a college has and, and then how that plays into how you break up your time. Um, so I'm a little bit curious, like both how that philosophy came about or maybe how you came to that math uh, about how to do that. <laughs> and then also like how you deal with the challenges of time in your curriculum planning. Well, okay. So um, I, I, it came up, it came up because the students were wondering what happened to lectures because <laughs> they know that when they go to university, they will have to sit in a 500 seat lecture hall and they will have to listen to a professor, you know, lecture. Mm -hmm. And they'll, they, they really see that as a, as a necessary skill. And so it'll, you know, it'll work. You know, I, I've gone to the seminar method instead of this lecture method and that'll work for about a month at the beginning of the year until the students realize that I'm not lecturing and that I'm not driving what we talk about on seminar days, that it's, it's up to them. And um, so they ask about that. They ask about that a lot, and parents ask me about that. And their argument is, um, you know, this is a skill that they need because they're gonna see it at, at the university level. And so um, I'll show them articles, and I'll show them, uh, you know, things like Major's articles and, and how we're trying to rethink the lecture. We're trying to rethink that in, 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 and turn it into a more active learning model. Um, but they still insist that we need to have that. So I've tried to come up with this idea that we, there has to be choices made. There has to be choices made in our classroom. And I'm looking, I was looking at how much they actually do lecture at, at, at university. And I can only speak for you know, for, for our students here, but uh, we've, they've gone to this model where they'll meet three times a week for lecture, mm -hmm. but they'll have a three-hour lab and they'll have a one-hour seminar. So an introductory bio course will be a five-credit course. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the time and I've broken out the time for, for these kids and I've told them and I've shown them that there is this time difference. There is this time difference. This five-credit class isn't a five-hour class. It's not we meet every day for 50 minutes the way we would in high school. You know, I add it up for them and I showed them it's a three hour lecture plus a one hour seminar plus a three hour lab. Meanwhile, we only have five meetings of 50 minutes. And so I, I have them, you know, I have them look at the time difference and I, and I ask them now, which would you rather get rid of? Because we have to get rid of something. There's this difference that we have to get rid of. I would like us to do these labs because these labs, 
is our active learning experiences. Mm -hmm. These labs and these activities are active learning experiences. And they'll sit there and they'll nod. And then I'll say, and I, I really like these seminars, these discussions that we have, because it allows us to go a little bit deeper into your misconceptions and into your challenges rather than where I think your challenges lie. And they'll sit there and they'll nod. And then they'll do the math again and they'll realize that they'd much rather do these inquiry labs mm -hmm. because they're able to, you know, and, and they won't admit it until after they've done <laughs> two or three inquiry labs, but they enjoy having the, you know, the variables in their hands. They really like that idea. Yeah. And I know that, you know, you've also mentioned the idea that, um, you know, you have to scaffold a lot of this stuff. So, and as we were mentioning earlier, like they don't necessarily know how to set up labs. They don't really know about variables. They also don't know maybe how to interact in a seminar situation, like right. how to identify their own conceptions, how to express their opinions, how to reflect, how to be a, an active listener, um, how to politely disagree with people, you know, those types of things that come up in a seminar exactly. situation. So you have to do a lot of teaching and scaffolding of the lessons around there um, about how to engage in those types of activities. There's a lot of, yeah. And, 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 and that's, again, this, this leads to, to this misconception where if you have a hybrid classroom or if you have a flipped classroom that the teacher isn't teaching, you mm -hmm. know, we've all heard that. <laughs> um, but we actually are, except our teaching is a, it's, it's a level that's behind what's happening in the classroom because we have to plan where things may go. We have to um, anticipate where these inquiry labs and where these seminars might go. And we have to be able to um, pivot quickly with activities if that's where the, the discussion goes. Mm. You know, so we do a lot of that, a lot of that kind of planning, um, you know, still within the framework that we know what we have to hit. But um, that's one of the things that the students and, and that's why they don't they don't they think it's a little bit more disjointed because it I'm not, you know, grabbing them by the hand and, and, and pulling them down a path. I'm showing them they can go left, they can go right. Which way do you want to go? Yeah. You know, and so it's one of those things where um, if they've never had it before, the first quarter of my year um, is really training them into letting go some of their some of their hang ups about this. Um, you know, I, I last year um, I had a, I got I had a letter from my class <laughs> and they wrote they wrote down that this is we don't think this working. You know, they wrote it down. They, they signed the letter and, and I make fun of them. I call it their 95 theses that they pinned to my door. Um, <laughs> they, they, they get the, they, they they get the Luther. <laughs> yeah. And they did get it. And they okay, did good. get it because they were all, you know, they, they're all AP kids. Right. And they, so they did understand it. Okay, good. But we sat there and we broke it down. We broke down how this was supposed to work. And after that first, you know, after that first quarter, because it, because they were holding so tight to some of these, you know, some of these ideas and because the other AP classes that they're coming from still held on to those ideals. They just weren't used to it. They just weren't used to, to um, being wrong, you know, that or, or and, and recognizing that it was OK to be wrong as long as they revisited it and reflected on why. You know, and, and, and I don't want to say wrong because wrong isn't really the, the, the word here. Yeah. 
No, but, but uh, it's one of those things where they don't they don't have this 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 reflective thinking. They don't have the circular thinking um, that I'm really trying to push. Well, it also goes to that idea that there's like this set of right answers that you, they are showing up to your classroom to get this set of right answers, which is a fallacy. I mean, that's just not how science works. Exactly. Um, they're learning a series of skills that they will apply throughout you know, the rest of their life, whether they're in a science class or not. Um, and that's really the goal. And that's one of the things that I, that, that I pushed. Um, you know, remember, remember that there's this huge thing out there where, you know, the scientific method isn't really the scientific method anymore. They're still coming from, you know, the idea that the scientific method is this eight step process or whatever it was they learned in middle school. And the teachers before me are still teaching them that, that there is this end point and here I am telling them, you know, let's throw that away because things change, yeah. you know, um, you know, they're, they're not, they, they don't, um, they don't, they don't understand that, that it is not a, a, a step one through eight thing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really trying to reflect that in the, in the way that I run the class as well, because I allow them and I want them and I encourage them to explore and maybe get something you know and again wrong is not the word i'm looking for but i invite them to get things wrong and yeah. they hate they don't want to mess up their lab don't want to mess up their notes you know they don't want to write anything until they know until they're absolutely sure until i've told them that it was correct you know yeah i actually had i had the con this this very conversation with a, a student just the other day um i had my students setting up their lab notebooks for their their upcoming lab and this kid had this like blank sheet of paper on the table and he and I'm like, where's your lab notebook? He's like, well, I don't want to write it in my lab notebook yet. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> that's the point of the lab notebook. But he's like, well, what if we change my mind or what if I this is no good? I was like, then it's in the lab notebook. It reflects exactly. the process. It reflects the process you went through. the The lab notebook is the it's the thing. Like, <laughs> and he was like, exactly. he looked. And I, he was so puzzled. And I, treat, I treat all of our notebooks that way. Yeah. You know, I I do this. Um, I use that internet interactive notebook style of where you only write on one side of the paper. You keep that left side blank so that you can make your notes and make your changes and make your reflections opposite, you know, what you wrote on the other side. Yeah. And they don't like that. They don't. They want to have these clean sheets of papers. Yeah. Um, I show them. I show them my undergrad lab books all the time, and I show them that hey, look at look at what we went through. This is what you go through when you are in a lab and when you are doing research, you are going through a lot of revisions and a lot of rethinks and a lot of, you know, and, and I show them these things and it, it's, you know, it's still, they, because they don't want to have that. They think that, that, um, you know, any, any of those redos or any of those reworks, they think that that's a sign against them. And I want to show them that no, 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 this is actually showing me that you are thinking that you are rethinking. Yeah, they're more than just a parrot. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. All right. So uh, now that we've talked to her about your philosophy and where you are today, what are you looking forward to moving forward in the classroom? What's, what's exciting for you about the next couple of years? I really want to explore this whole um, gradeless idea. You know, I want to take I want to take my my uh, ideas of, of standards based grading, and I want to take it a little bit further, especially with um, biology one, with my bio one kids. Um, I think there's an opportunity there with um, Arizona starting to, um, you know, we're going to take NGSS and we're going to start integrating those things into our 
science standards, I think now is a, a perfect time to really explore how to take these standards-based grading ideas and this gradeless idea and, and how to push this reflective thinking and this problem solving and this inquiry onto our younger students. Mm. Um, that's what I'm really excited for is this, is this rewrite and this integration of MGSS. And, um, you know, it, it's, I, I have in my department, you know, we have a, a, uh, um, a department that is still waiting to hear how these standards are going to affect our curriculum. And I'm just ready to jump in. Yeah. You know, I'm ready to start the rewrite now because I know it's coming. And so these are the things that, that in the next couple of years I'm, I'm really excited about because then I'll get to um, talk to my colleagues about this philosophy and this, this pedagogy of, of pushing process. Um, you know, I'm really, I really like the way some of, the, um, you know, some of our teachers in our groups, in our online groups and in the NGSS group and in the NABT group, I really like how they are, are really reflecting on how these rewrites are going on in everybody's state, you know? And so that's what I'm excited for. I'm excited for that, for this new integration that's that's going to be coming up. Yeah. That's cool. I'm curious, what's your timeline? Uh, do you guys know when you're, do you, have you adopted new standards or are they? So this year, yeah. So this year is, um, we're in the, uh, well, we're, I, I think our adoption phase starts next year. They're reviewing all of our all of the standards and putting it together, and then um, next year we'll start the adoption phase. Um, so I'm looking at I think we're looking at two to three years before we have full integration. Mm -hmm. So I think by then there will be more than enough states that we can look to as models to see how they integrated NGSS into their state standards. Um, and I don't think you know I, I think it'll remove a lot of the fear that uh, you know some of our science teachers are 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 feeling i think there's this a level of com of uh of comfort that 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 has grown with the standards that we have now and um i'm ready to blow it up to be honest <laughs> with you <laughs> yeah yeah we're we're so we're in the midst of our we've adopted standards they officially adopted them in 2016 and they're going to change their test in 2018 uh, or 2019, I think 28. There was so we have new standards, but they're still assessing at the high school level our old standards, okay. uh, which is sort of our adoption period, if you will. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm looking forward to this spring being one year out from the change. Well, actually, they haven't officially announced it, but it says to be decided in 2019. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the writing's on the wall. We the, know it's coming. The, so. the, yeah, the writing's on the wall. But I think that what I will start to see is this this upcoming spring, we should see a draft of what they think the assessment's going to look like. Okay. And I think that once that comes about... Um, and I know people who are on the who are on the uh, assessment writing committee, um, so <laughs> a little bit. Of, it's one of the nice things about networking is that you, <laughs> you get to know people who are who are doing these things. So it's like, gee, if they're running that, and somebody's like, oh, I'm on that committee. I was like, oh, great. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I'm thinking that by this spring we're going to start to see that. But what I've been noticing myself um, as I've been working this year um, is that, and Massachusetts adopted a very NGSS like set of standards. Um, mm -hmm. is that it's shocking how much it's like the AP. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like it's... And, 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 and that's probably why I'm, you yeah. know, very comfortable and I really want to get started yeah. on it because, 
you know, I already feel like it's like, you know, it, it matches what I would what I would like to do in the classroom. Yeah. And I think it, when I say that, it also reflects where I said, you know, we're still teaching the AP on the bones of the old curriculum in mm -hmm. terms of like sort of how we laid our units out. I envision that with these new standards um, and as I've been playing around with them, um, I teach an alternative program. So it's sort of my my sandbox where um, that I it's not a class that you can teach in a traditional way. Um, it's, right. You have to right. teach it in a project-based way. So that I do. Um, I teach it in very much a project-based way. I'm seeing how this sort of plays out of teaching a project-based timeline, teaching a storyline, right. hitting these standards in this way. Um, and as I do this and I look at this and I think about the concept of storylining out the AP curriculum, I go, oh, we're going to be telling different stories in AP. Like, or we, there's a potential to tell different stories. And so, so that's sort of where I, my headspace is. And I, I want to sit down and go and do some of those, those big, big changes because I, I like you, see how this NGSS approach is going to start changing the approach to curriculum design. Yeah. And I, I'm excited for, uh, you know, for, um, this the changeover because I think it's going to allow some of our veteran teachers um, to explore without um, you know without fear yeah. you know because I, I, I really want to push some of our some of our teachers who who have decided that um, you know they're a little bit too comfortable I'm like hey now is going to be our time now is going to be our time to get a little uncomfortable and to be okay with it because we're all going to be going through it you know. Yeah. So I, I think it's one of those things that, that I think it's going to give up, give, you know, an opportunity for, for me and my colleagues to to you know work at a different level. I think that's what I'm excited for in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's great. All right. So um, before we get to, to, to questions and picks, uh, when you're not teaching, because, you know, we have all of this extra spare time um, <laughs> <laughs> when, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? So um, I. Um, you know, with wrestling being my outlet, mm -hmm. um, I, that is pretty much what I do year round with my teaching. Um, so for me, wrestling isn't just during the winter season, which is our traditional sports season. Mm -hmm. uh, we do spring wrestling season, uh, which is the Olympic wrestling uh, styles. And then we go into summer and I like training, you know, kids so that for me is my, uh, you know, that's my outlet. I, I, I wrestle. I, I have that physical component, that, that sport component to my life mm -hmm. that, uh, I couldn't do without if it, if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't there. So I'm very happy that our, our school decided to seed our program again. Um, but that's, that's pretty much what I do. It's, it's, uh, I, it's that and it's sports. Um, <laughs> I'm, I love, I love my sports. Yeah. So, you know, if it's not, football or American football or baseball, um, you know, it, it's my life revolves around sports. So, and just being a fan, you know, yeah. just, just, just being a fan. So I, I could, uh, you know, like I said, today is a great day for baseball because there's three games and we're not even halfway through my day. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I love, I love days like this. So that's what, that's what I do outside of teaching. It's, it's, and it's really hard for me to, to, um, you know, get away from outside of teaching because again, I'm coaching, so yeah. I'm still teaching, you know, I'm still, I still have that mindset. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's my free time. My free time is sports and it's coaching. It's coaching yeah. wrestling. Cool. All right. Before we get to picks of the episode, do you got any questions for me? 
So um, you are coming from a a work culture where you have, um, or I'm, I'm going to assume that you have um, active representation. Is that uh, is that like yeah, am union I, representation? Yeah, like, yeah. Like a teacher association. Yep. Because I'm in a I'm in a right to work state, and yeah. I'm really starting to see, um, you know, these strains that that kind of thing does. So my question for you is, how are you, or how easy is it for you to cope? And, and again, easy, like you know, whatever mm-hmm. degree you want to talk about, how how easy it is for you to cope with your. Uh, working conditions when you know that you have that layer of representation? Uh, yeah, so this is a, a, it's always a tough question because um, there's there I have a little bit of ignorance um, because of it was like this is this is your classic like I'm aware of my privilege um, and right. <laughs> I, I'm aware of my privilege and but I that doesn't mean I know what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes. Um, right. I've always taught Massachusetts. Um, and not that I think that any particular, I don't think unions are particularly strong today. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my, my, uh, I, I grew up and my, my father was a, a carpenter when he was younger, <clears throat> before he went back to school. And, and uh, I've, I come from tradespeople and, and I, I remember sort of the union days of those guys growing up um, and sort of the talk of, of those types of unions, of, you know, carpenters unions and like, electricians brotherhoods and plumbers and those types of groups and so for me like growing up that's sort of what i envision in terms of union um and teachers unions are a different network because it's a professional union um yes but uh i certainly know that having talked to teachers who teach in other states and right to work states who they don't get raises um at all uh that Mm -hmm. that don't really have a lot of um they just don't have a lot of uh, process as an employee. Like if they have a problem, they don't really have much of a voice. Um, right. I don't really know what that's like to have that. Now I, I teach in a very good school uh, with a pretty good relationship between the school, the, the teachers in the school the central office and our school committee. Um, that's not to say that it's always like, you know, sunshine and roses. Um, it, <laughs> there, there are disagreements amongst those three groups uh, in terms of, you know, compensation and, and contracts and that sort of stuff. But, um, most of the time that I've been where I am currently, um, I have felt that, you know, it's, a there's a group who's looking out for my best interest. Um, and that if they can't make a change, it's because the, the, the winds are stronger than a group of teachers in our district can hold. So, for example, you know, there have been some laws that have pushed through changes to, um, you know, health insurance or they've pushed through things about like our state assessments or standards or uh, teacher evaluation or things like that. And there have been laws that have been pushed through. And when those laws are getting up, coming up for discussion and debate, the, the teachers unions in Massachusetts are very vocal about the changes before they get to the the state Senate or the state house before they get mm-hmm. to the governor's desk, the the union is, is communicating that out to its members. Um, they will hold rallies at the state house. There's, there's definitely a sense statewide that there is a group who is paying attention to that legislation and that process on our behalf. 
um, and letting us okay. know when when is the time to be like, yes, there's this change is happening and you should be aware of it. Um, and we're going to advocate on your behalf um, in this case. So do you feel um, not I don't want to say protection, but but you feel a little bit more relaxed when you're in that kind of a of an environment or where you're able to just put some of your um, some of those issues off to the side and focus a little bit more on what you want to do in the classroom, for example? Yeah, I, I would say that for me, um, you know, again, I, I taught in a few different districts in Massachusetts, and I would certainly say that y the importance of or how well you feel or how comfortable you feel in this case, there's sort of a double layer to it. Um, one, there is a quality to the district you teach in mm -hmm. and how much trust you have in the people who you work with, you know, school committee, administration, that sort of thing um, in your local community. And then there's sort of the statewide advocacy. And right now I'm pretty comfortable on both those levels. Um, in Massachusetts, I've always been pretty comfortable with what's going on in the state. Um, that's not to say I'm always happy with what goes on in the state, but I do feel like there's an advocacy group that's at least, you know, being loud and vocal when, right. you know, things are getting pushed through and it's not like they go quietly and they just, you know, roll over or whatever. And they have had some ability to, um, you know, voice opposition to things that they felt were bad for public education in the state, um, ballot initiatives, that sort of thing. Um, again, they don't win them all because it's, it's politics and that's the way it is. Exactly. But I do exactly. feel like they're th on the statewide. I've never had a I've never felt like there's no voice on the statewide mm -hmm. level in Massachusetts. Um, I will say that having taught in different districts, um, you don't always feel like there is a group in house that is able to communicate what's in best, the best interest of teachers and students. And that widely varies um, district to district. And, I, and I'm just fortunate in where I'm currently teaching that I, I feel very comfortable where I am currently. Um, but I know that that hasn't been the case throughout my whole, my whole career. Do you pay attention to, um, you know, these state by state rankings? No. <laughs> I, so you don't... You you don't at all, um, you know, compare your situation with, with you know, a different state no. or a different at all. No. And, and, and to me, the because I feel like there's there's so much variation within the state. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's also a few things like, you know, I'm a I'm a 40 something year old guy married two kids, you know, house mortgage. I'm not going anywhere like um, <laughs> like if I was to look and get really caught up in it, I might get really caught up with the fact that like. If I had moved to Connecticut, would things be better? You know, right, right. if I go to, you know, are there a handful of places where things could might be, you know, maybe better compensation or slightly better environment of teaching? But the truth is, is Massachusetts is a pretty darn good place to be a public school teacher. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I know that. Um, and that's from just, you know, that kind of experience. But then within the state, you know, I've taught I taught in a school district, which was the lowest per, per people cost in the state of Massachusetts. Um, and they couldn't pass an override uh, to get things done like things to make the school in compliance with laws like uh, yeah. like they they yeah. just it was and so it's a, to me that there's this community level where if your community supports you that's really big and when I talk to people who teach in other in other states whether it's you know a right to work state or it's a state where you know unions are pretty strong there is still a variation community community within those so there are communities where even though it may not be great for teachers throughout the whole state, there are pockets where it's really good to be a teacher. And right. similarly, there are places like in the Northeast where it's really good to be a teacher, 
but in certain schools, it's, it's not so great. Um, so you have an opportunity then as a veteran teacher to, um, you know, maybe to talk to teacher candidates or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's, you know, I, I have a couple, you know, right now who I'm working with and sometimes I feel like, um, you know, I, I want to tell them to really sit down and think about what, what path they are about to take. Yeah. Uh, do you think that that's something that, uh, you know, we should be, you know, letting, telling them because I'm, especially here it, where I'm at, um, I, I really think it's something that they have to think about because, our conditions here are so much different than anywhere else yeah. in the States, you know? Well, I do think there is a, there is a natural evolution that goes into sort of that early career teaching. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a time and a place for that conversation. And um, having been in other districts, being that young teacher, um, where I knew that it wasn't a great long-term place, um, I did have one colleague who, you know, was actually from a former school who I had went and talked to and they were pretty blunt with me. And I think that, you know, I don't view that as like the professional responsibility. I, I viewed that more as like a friend, <laughs> you know, okay, good, I felt like good. it was, I think it was, he wasn't talking to me as like, you know, one teacher talking to another about this sort of thing. It was, it was a friend relationship. You know, we had gone out, we were talking about how things were going, uh, we didn't work in the same school at that time. He was asking me some questions and then was really asking me some probing questions about sort of where do I see myself in five years, 10 years, that kind of thing. Um, because the fact is, is that, you know, different people have different levels of comfort with different components. Like, you know, I, I, I know colleagues who work in other districts in this state and they're like super happy where they're teaching. And I look at sort of the compensation and that sort of thing, and I look at what they're doing. And to me, I'm, I wouldn't be happy there. But like right, the right. the community that they're in, and there's there's connections and communities and things that are super important to them about where they teach, and those things trump the compensation for them. And you know, it's it, there's so much that goes into with like, I mean, what you're asking is like, how do you, how are you happy? <laughs> You know, right. <laughs> like, like what makes you a happy, contented professional? Um, and there's things that I have as my threshold of, you know, as I'm, I'm there, like I'm, you're asking me about these conditions and stuff like that. And I'm a happy, contented professional. So those things don't ring with me. Um, yes. but I think that when you talk to your friends and they're particularly when they're at a crossroads and that was a point with me, I was, I was a young, I was a young teacher and I had, you know, I wasn't settled. I wasn't married i wasn't you know i didn't have kids i didn't have a house and the questions they were having he was an older teacher who could sort of see those you know those decisions that were going to come down the line and was able to ask me the kinds of questions about how was i setting myself up you know to be the person that i wanted to be to be the professional i wanted to be going forward and i think that's you know in some ways the role of friends who don't necessarily have the vested interest in the building um yeah, yeah. i don't know that's Maybe not the best answer, but <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's right. definitely yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I do know that it's tough, and I, I would love to say that you're alone. But having heard stories from teachers in a variety of states around the country, you know, um, there's a lot of places that it's not a great place to be a teacher, um, and and it makes me, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, if it's 
you know, sometimes there's people who say there are um, that public schools can't do anything, and then they undermine the public schools doing anything. <laughs> right. And so, if your philosophy <laughs> is that the public schools are failing, and then you set up a series of events to help the public schools struggle and be unsuccessful, um, you know, that's a good way of winning an argument, but it's a really bad way to treat our kids. Um, right. So. That's uh, that's a that's a come to reckoning conversation. But I will tell you, there are people who I teach with in my building who feel the same exact way, and they're and I don't think where I teach is a tough place to teach. But there are people I know who I've worked with in my building who feel that way. So as I say, it's, it to me it's a very personal uh, difference <laughs> in terms of where what what makes you a happy, contented professional. Well, it's just, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's good to hear from someone on, you know, that side of the, of the country where conditions are definitely completely different than what I'm going through. Yeah. So it's good to hear. Yeah. Hopefully it's, it will be more equitable everywhere at some yeah. point. At some point. At some point. Before we go too down, down, uh, that road, uh, let's, let's move on to picks of the week. <laughs> so, uh, so Clifford, what, what is your, uh, pick of the episode? Well, I think um, I really like um, this time of the year, um, this time of, of, of the school year especially because it's, it, it, it'll usually come out the week before we go on fall break. And I really like it when the Nobel Prizes start coming out, um, especially because the, the, the science Nobel Prizes are come, come out right at the beginning of the week. And I really like showing and pointing out to my students that the things that we are studying was built on, you know, these scientists. And this is what we're looking at. And remember when we talked about this the other week. And remember when we talked about this when we were freshmen. Well, this is the research that started it all. So I really love showing them the, uh, you know, the, the Nobel laureates and, and really showing them that uh, – there is a uh, there is a, a recognition here for for science, mm-hmm. and that it, it goes beyond what we're trying to study in our books. It, it, it's it's a real life living thing, and uh, one of the things that I pointed out to them, um, you know, was the research for um, uh, medicine, the uh, the Nobel laureates for for medicine. Um, uh, uh, Professor Hall and, and Ross Bash and Young, that. Uh, they, I used the, uh, as an intro at the beginning of the year, I used the mouse circadian rhythms question, uh, FRQ, as an example of an FRQ for my students at the beginning of the year to show them that if we do what we're supposed to do, if we learn the science skills that we are supposed to learn, that we are going to be learning all year, it won't matter what content is put in front of you. You will be able to work your way through it. And so I love showing them that that uh, because it was a wallop. It was a it was it was a huge, huge thing when we first saw it. When I first saw it as a teacher, and um, they had no idea what to do with it until we worked our way through it. We worked we worked our way through a process through the process of it, and then I showed them this this um, you know this research, mm-hmm. and they were able to put it together. And they they said, oh, you know, so that that's where this came from. That's where this question's coming from. Um, it's one of those things that that it shows them. Um, it's not uh, it, it's not as abstract as they think it is. It's not yeah. as conceptual as they think it is. There is a grounding to it, and I really love this week. Uh, the last week, I really love last week, um, 
because it always comes out the week before fall break and mm-hmm. we always get this this discussion of of, of the Nobel laureates and their research because it's uh, you know it's things that they know it's things that they know or things that they run into. Yeah, the thing I love about this particular one is it's mo- mostly done in fruit flies. Um, yes, <laughs> and I, I teach I we teach through a lens of model organisms and fruit flies one of our model exactly. organisms. So actually realizing as you're talking, I was like, oh, I got to go back and change that because I think I got to change that. in the number. I have like literally the number of Nobel prizes that have been awarded for work with our different model organisms. And I got I got to go back and change the fly one now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> gotta add that is a good point. That gotta is go a good to point because the kids did add bring that, that up. They did bring that up. Yeah. Gotta, gotta go add that to that number. <laughs> cool. All right. So uh, my pick of the episode is I'm a big Lin-Manuel Miranda fan. Um, I don't know. I don't know where you stand on musicals. Musicals are... <laughs> Musicals are different for people, but I'm a big... Well, that one was inescapable, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I am one of those people... I, I am, like, the biggest cliche, but my wife grew up just outside of New York City, and so she grew up on musicals. Um, and so it's, like, her whole life, you know, her mom and her would go in, and they'd get, like, the matinee tickets on Wednesday discount. And so, like, the first Broadway musical I ever went to, um, she took me to back when, you know, like, she was 18, I was 19, we were in college... Um, and I saw Tommy on Broadway. Oh, wow. It's part of our, our whole life together has been going to, to theater. So, you know, when Hamilton came out and it was like this big thing and everyone was talking about it, I was like, ah, whatever. And so I went and listened to it. But for me, as a kid who grew up listening to uh, like late 80s, early 90s hip hop and like listening yes. to that album start <laughs> to finish, and I was like, talk about just completely blown away because it was this world that's my wife's world this this musical world which i like and i definitely enjoy musicals and i enjoy several of the shows we've been to with all of this hip-hop layered in um it was like amazing and she was like so did you get the 10 dual commandments i was like yeah i knew the 10 dual (laughs) commandments yes i immediately like i was like oh my god as soon as that song started so anyway i'm a huge fan of lin-manuel miranda um just because he's brilliant but for those of you guys who um i don't know who are unaware uh lin-manuel is also a prominent puerto rican who lives in new york he's you know part of the diaspora um from puerto rico and and he was raising money um, this past week. Uh, he had a almost like praying song that came out uh, to help raise money um, on behalf of uh, the relief efforts in Puerto Rico um, after the hurricane. So um, I'm going to put a link into the show notes for a link to the hispanicfederation.org uh, uh, so you can donate to that uh, which is who he was raising money for. I'll also put a link into the article uh, so you can actually get to the song um, if you'd like to, to listen to Almost Like Praying featuring artists for Puerto Rico. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, a great fundraiser, great artists um, and if you're interested in chipping in you know, it's always good to help out. So That's my pick of the week, pick of the episode. That's a beautiful take. All right. So, uh, Clifford, thank you so much for joining me. This was awesome. This was a great conversation. Um, as I promised, we were going to go, <laughs> we're going to go over an hour. I told you that to start. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks again. Uh, let me get through my credits. Uh, this and every episode, uh, you can get show notes at lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, you can uh, follow me um, at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School on Twitter. Couldn't find you on Twitter. You're just a Facebook guy. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I've tried Twitter, but I, I think that's more of an East Coast phenomenon than it is <laughs> an Arizona phenomenon. It doesn't. The, nobody in the desert uh, uses uh, Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you can follow me on uh, on Twitter uh, at either of those two handles. Uh, you can also, uh, if you are interested in uh, supporting this show, uh, you can go to www.patreon.com slash lots, L-O-T-S. Uh, I do have a Patreon page set up for this show. And if you become a reoccurring donor... Uh, uh, to this show, you will be invited into a secret community uh, that involves Patreons of my show, David Konefke's blog, and that guy, that guy John Darko, who uh, puts together uh, crazy simulations. Uh, we have a little uh, community as a uh, a bonus. So any reoccurring donors to any of us or any of our work uh, gets brought into a Slack community where we have like these little private chats about teaching and learning and. I just saw Bob Kuhn pop up in there this week. So the, the names the names are of, of the heavy hitters in there are pretty good. Uh, I feel blessed to be in there. Uh, music on this and every episode is by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. Uh, this will be our late October episode. And um, I think my next episode will be a preview of NABT. So um, for everybody who's looking forward to that, I'm hoping to get a couple people on who are going to be presenting at NABT. So uh, everybody take care and I'll talk to you soon. Well, we've done enough complimenting. We can start uh get the formal recording going. <laughs> uh, <laughs>